<laughs> hey, it's Dad, also known as Dead. And I'm Sam, also known as Daughter, and also known as Slaughter. Welcome back. That's right. It's Dead and Slaughter, the Dad and Daughter Horror Show. And uh, we are here once again to discuss, in an ongoing fashion, some of the best movies in horror that uh, Sam and I are sharing together and sharing our experiences with you. Sam, what was uh, this episode's offering? This was Alien, one of my favorite horror movies and one of the first horror movies I ever watched. And really, I think the one that got you into the the genre, uh, I think, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, so uh, as always, let's start with a, a brief synopsis of the film. Do you want to do that or do you want me to? Will you please do that? <laughs> sure. All right. So uh, Alien, it's going to be hard to do this uh, quickly, but we'll do it as fast as we can. Alien is uh, the story of the crew of the uh, mining ship Nostromo, uh, which is returning to Earth uh, from deep space after being out on a mission for an undetermined period of time. The crew is awoken early on their journey home because uh, the uh, ship's computer, known as Mother, has received what the crew thinks is a distress call. And uh, Mother is uh, has instructions to interrupt the trip and interrupt the crew's deep sleep uh, as they travel through uh, space. Um, should she receive such a message, so um, to to go and investigate whether or not there is some kind of life form responsible for this message. The crew lands on a planet that is unnamed, a planet that is obviously very inhospitable. Uh, three of the crew members venture out and discover a very large and foreboding ship uh, in which one of the crew members uh, has, uh, shall we say, an episode with uh, some alien life form. Uh, which is affectionately known to most movie viewers at this time as a face hugger. Uh, the face hugger uh, is brought back onto the ship by the uh, expedition members, and uh, mayhem ensues because uh, after the face hugger detaches itself from uh, Kane, the crew member, uh, we learn very quickly that its purpose was to deposit an egg of an alien inside Kane. It then uh, exits from Kane's body in a very gratuitous scene, which we will discuss uh, in a short while. Um, the uh, alien then escapes into the ship where it uh, metamorphosizes into a very large and very um, destructive, uh, very murderous form, and one by one picks off the crew members until only uh, Sigourney Weaver's character, Ripley, is left and has to uh, deal with uh, the alien and the ship and a very... Um, a uh, mischievous cat named Jones, who uh, has an outsized role in this film. Sam, uh, I know you've loved this film, and uh, I enjoyed watching it with you for the, well, gosh, I think it's the second or third time we've watched it together. Uh, do you remember how you felt watching it the first time? Well, watching it the first time, it was like the second horror movie, I believe, that I ever watched. And we were watching it and we paused it a few times because you were telling your best friend about how I was finally watching Alien. And she was saying about how she couldn't get through that movie and it was so scary. And so I began to think, wow, I really have a high tolerance here, <laughs> which is why I agreed to this podcast. And I do not have a high tolerance. But 
I just really enjoyed it. I thought it was more of a thriller than a horror, and it had a lot of different plot twists that I really enjoyed. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it, it is it is a classic. It's uh, it, I mean, it dates all the way back to 1979 and spawned, if you will, uh, a whole series of uh, sequels and other uh, you know movie branches that have come off of it. Uh, and it really is uh, one of the great sci-fi and certainly sci-fi horror films ever made. Um, but the reason I, I wanted to include it in this series uh, on our podcast is because it redefines the horror film and really kind of embodies, not the horror film, but the monster movie genre and, and embodies so many classic things and important things about the monster film. And uh, I wanted to invite a guest to discuss that today, and so he's going to join us now. Uh, his name is Ryan Smith. Ryan is a, a colleague of mine as a uh, emergency uh, department nurse, but he also has a career as an amateur filmmaker and has been working uh, making horror movies for the past five years uh, under the Creepy TV uh label or name, I guess, studio, if you will, and has published uh, various uh, movies uh, that way on YouTube and uh, in uh, film festivals. And Ryan is joining us today because uh, most of the horror films he makes are uh, all about uh, monster films. So I wanted to get his insights as to why Aliens are classic and uh, get his uh, sort of views on why we should appreciate this movie as much as we do. Welcome to the Dead and Slaughter podcast, Ryan. Hey guys, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. <laughs> I have no complaints. <laughs> so Ryan, uh, you know, in your mind, how does this film kind of stack up against other, some of the other great monster films uh, through the, you know, through time? Oh man. Uh, so uh, in all honesty, this was the first horror movie that I can remember seeing. And it was uh, at some uh, sleepover some Friday night, like way back in my youth. And we had rented it from, you know, one of the blockbuster stores and, you know, we had the VHS quality, uh, VHS. And I remember most decidedly in that movie, the chest scene that, um, I think you guys know what I'm talking about, yep. um, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was the one horror movie that I recall seeing from my youth. And I think it was the first and it made a decided impact on me, you know, with the, whole adventure through space and then um kind of that almost irritating where you don't see the monster enough but you really want to and then that's something that i've kind of carried forward uh as i have gone into filmmaking that sometimes the less you can see the more terrifying it is and i think alien really did uh like hit that the hit the nail on the hammer or the sorry hit the hit the nail on the head with that um in this movie, but yeah, it was, it was a great film. Yeah. We talked about that a lot. Uh, Sam and I, when we were watching it, uh, I mentioned how this was pre CGI and how, um, you know, the monster in this movie was either a puppet or a person in a costume. And in order to make it real, they either didn't show you it or when they did show it to you, it was always in very poor lighting or with strobe effects. And, uh, um, yeah, you said Sam that, uh, that did enhance things for you, right? Yes, because I, I I asked you the second time we watched it, why is there why are there so many flashing lights? It's just constant strobe effect any time that the aliens around. And yes, that did amplify the horror and it did amplify the tension. Um, 
but I always wondered why. And, and it makes perfect sense. CGI just didn't exist or wasn't very good at that time. And so the lighting really enhanced the alien when it was really just a costume or a puppet. Yeah, and we watched a preview of some of the later Alien movies where the alien is seen in its whole form in much more visually, and it, it it's different, right? It, it yeah. doesn't, doesn't have the same... I mean, you know, a big part of the movie Alien and a big part of the fear is the atmosphere of the ship itself, right? It's a dark ship. There's lots of, like, lots of water. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. constantly water dripping, uh, you know. Yeah, we I were mentioned- talking about amount of moisture throughout the movie right it's gotta be a really humid ship yeah right (laughs) and 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 like there's 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 this very um you know there's a gross kind of aspect to it right there's like the body horror of of the alien bursting out of the the person's body obviously that's that that is something that i think a lot of people you know just grosses people (laughs) out but but then there's also just this like tactile you know, grossness, like the slime that the alien leaves behind that people are always like finding, um, you know, and then the ash, um, all the sweat and moisture from the machines, everything like that just adds to the whole disgusting atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. It's really grimy and gross and it just makes you uncomfortable to watch it, let alone have to deal with the alien. Yeah. And, and very little music. Unlike a lot of horror films where music is used to set the tone and set, you know, set you up for fear. This movie, the music only starts once you've gotten past the scare part. So, for example, when Brett is uh, looking for the cat, Jones, that stupid cat, Jonesy, Jonesy, and he's walking into that room and the the chains are clinking and the water's dripping. Uh, The alien is behind him and the music doesn't kick in until you already realize that the alien is there and he's about to meet his, his end. Uh, You're left, you're left completely on your own to decide how scared you should be. So um, that seems to be a pretty recurring theme throughout many of the movies we've discussed on this podcast. For example, the exorcist, there's, there's really a lack of, of music and it really enhances the tension because then you're left with visuals to really take you through the horror and it just feels uncomfortable to have no audio. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because when you think about um, like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street or like the uh, the Jason movies, the music is such an integral part. Um, but I think that the horror of this film is so much different because obviously those are slashers and this is yeah, more of like the exploration and the unknown, and uh, it's just a different feel. Yeah, when you have that lack of music, you kind of chew on it in your mind a lot more. I, I agree. I th- and to me, this is a higher art form. This it's much harder to create tension without the use of music. Yeah. Uh, you know, the music. You know, I mean, you could watch and you could find YouTube examples of this all over the place where they'll take. Um, scenes from movies and set them to different kinds of music and show how music really manipulates emotions. And in the absence of music, you have to manipulate the, mo- the emotion with only, you know, visuals. And uh, yeah, there's the sounds of the, you know, the atmospheric sounds, but those atmospheric sounds are, are 
um, I would argue much less powerful than the music is in some of those other films that you just mentioned. So, um, I, I, you know, I think Ridley Scott did a really fantastic job in this movie of using visuals, shadow, light and dark, uh, and, you know, steam, lots of steam, yeah. uh, lots of, uh, close-ups. Uh, like for example, you know, Ripley's hand comes up out of the ladder and you have that close up of the sweat on her fingernails and then the camera focuses on her face. And then only then does the camera draw back to sort of show you a little bit more of the scene. Uh, similarly, there's a, a close up of Jones in the, in the cat box. And then you see the alien's face kind of lo looming over that cat box. A uh, lot of, uh, use of those kinds of very, very tight, uh, shots to really enhance that kind of tension. So I, I really appreciated the filmmaking uh, in Alien, and and that gets lost in the sequels. Um, but um, yeah, I, I thought it was very powerful and effective in this film. Yeah, and kind of to what you were saying, um, with the lack, you know, when they have those close-ups, it kind of makes you feel a little claustrophobic because you know something's hiding just off of frame, and you're like, just. Why, you know, draw back a little bit. I want to see what's what's going on just outside of the frame. And yeah, it does help to kind of keep that tension going with uh, just those simple shot varieties. And this movie really does play into key human fears, such as the dark or claustrophobia. Or, for example, when Dallas goes into the dark vent and he has oh. absolutely no clue where the alien might be. And then the tracker lags. And we're just left to wonder, well what's going to happen now. And so I feel like it really does play into those key human fears and key just nat natural fears of the unknown, as you said, of the dark, of closed spaces, things like that. Uh, that's a great uh, observation, Sam. We've talked about those, you know, innate fears, you know, fear of being eaten, fear of dark, fear of, uh, you know, fear of small spaces. And yeah, this movie really picks up on a lot of them. And it's interesting because Dallas is, uh, you know, his character is clearly the most in control uh, throughout the film until the very end where he's like, you know what, just get me the hell out of here. This is not working out. And then it's too late. Dallas, you're going to have to hold your position for a minute. I... I've lost the signal. What? You sure? Look around. Are you sure that it's not there? I mean, it's got to be around there somewhere. Check that out, Lambert. You may be getting interference. Dallas, are you sure there is no sign of it? I mean, it is there. It's got to be around there. Dallas? I might, I might play around, but I want to get the hell out of here. Oh, God, it's moving right towards you. Uh. Move, get out of there. Move, get out of Uh, I, I did want to uh, mention because Sam and I have had the conversation about how 
you know, this is a classic example uh, of a film where people just continually make stupid decisions and you're just like, the person who's making the right decision is Ripley all the time. Like, you know, no, you're not bringing that onto the ship. That's a bad idea. And everybody else is like, yeah, sure, bring it onto the ship. (laughs) Like, (laughs) It's very true. And as you said, like Dallas does seem to be the most controlled until something like very... I don't know. Just remember when Kane got infected by the alien at first, he wasn't even thinking logically. He was just, we have to get him on the ship now. When Ripley was the one that was like, we can't get him on the ship. That, that, that's just not going to work. You're endangering the rest of the crew. And he was just completely neglecting that rule. But I loved how long that scene played out for, because it gives the audience time to participate in the decision-making you know i mean like like what would you do if you're ripley right i mean that that's that's like you know the movie obviously can't continue if he doesn't get him on the ship but at the same time you have this gut feeling that she's absolutely correct and the procedure and the policy are there for a reason and uh it's just fascinating to me the scene plays out a lot longer than you know you think it it would and it just goes back and forth back and forth and um yeah it's just a it's just a great scene and then also you know she's the first one to come up with the idea of just blowing the ship (laughs) (laughs) and the others are like we can't do that. And then finally they're like, yeah, you know what? That was actually a really good idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, to your point with uh, that back and forth scene about letting um, Kane onto the ship during that, um, you know, it, it is almost an uncomfortably long scene, but I think uh, it, when compared to horror films of today, they cut a lot faster. The decisions are made a lot more, or they're made a lot more quickly. And um, by drawing that scene out, like, just like you said, where it engages the audience and you're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dude, don't let them in. And you have this in your head as the scene continues to play out for longer and longer. And then they finally let him in. And you're like, oh, God, what, what, what's going on? Why did you guys do that? But it does. Letting that draw out encourage like an audience participation, you know, and I, I really do appreciate that slower pace um, that you see in those older films versus the just the quick cuts and stuff that you see today. Oh, the pacing. Oh, no kidding, right? I completely agree with that. The pacing of this film. I mean, the first, what, half an hour, 45 minutes, it seems? Like, uh, it's amazing to me that this movie was as successful as it was because, I mean, that first 30 to 40 minutes, nothing happens. And, and, And yet, the payoff is completely worth it. But it's like, it's not even clear to me. Like if you think back to that first 30 or 40 minutes, there's no character development. There's no real, anything goes on. It's just a matter of setting atmosphere and setting the tone of what's going to come later. But I mean, Holy smokes, like, uh, like great job again by the director Ridley Scott to, to be patient and allow it to play out. I, I told Sam, she hasn't seen 2001 a space odyssey but this movie owes so much to 2001 and uh that pacing and that you know is is very much akin to that film and i I remember when we were going to watch the movie in the first place the first time you told me are you sure you really want to watch the movie because i feel like you're just (laughs) gonna give up at the beginning because it's very slow paced but really i felt that in the first 30 40 
30, 40, around 35 minutes of the film. I just really enjoyed watching how the crew interacted with the, with each other and how the crew worked on the ship before anything happened. And I think it gave you a really good atmospheric idea of what the crew and what it was like before the alien or before anything happened. Yeah. Like, like yeah. Like in the first, what? 15 minutes all you see is that light flickering on the helmet as they're woken up and then having breakfast and you're just like dropped into like hey welcome back out of you know hypersleep uh we've got you know just orient yourselves because uh here comes an adventure and yeah you just kind of watch them go through the most motions you know just kind of watching from the outside and yeah yeah i was you know it is it's a classic but at the same time i was wondering you know like how how did he sell that i mean uh, yeah, he does owe a lot to 2001, especially because how slow that goes. But he did a, an amazing job with setting the stage for you know the rest of the movie and just kind of allowing the, the audience their participation in the beginning by just watching the crew come into the situation. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Uh, we should definitely spend a little bit of time talking about the, you know, the the crux scene of the movie which is of course <laughs> when the alien makes its first appearance because there's so much to talk about on that scene but also a lot of interesting kind of backstory to it sam you you read a little bit about it why don't you share what you've learned about that scene where uh kane gives up the alien if you will <laughs> well that scene was so the only person that knew about that scene was obviously the director and the writers and kane the other actors were completely oblivious to what was going to happen because the script just read and the alien emerges. So they had they had set up four cameras getting the authentic reaction of all other actors, all four actors, I believe, that were around Kane at the time. And the, the authentic reaction, especially of Lambert, played by Veronica Cartwright, who got like just a random splash of fake blood all over her. And you could just tell that they were completely freaked out because they had no idea that that was going to happen. Yeah, Yafet Koto's face and um, Tom Skerritt's face uh, were priceless to me because, yes. you know, when you see the movie the first time and you don't know it's coming, obviously you're not watching the other actors. But now that I've seen it a few times and I know that whole backstory, I watch the other actors and the absolute shock on their faces is so genuine and that's why it's because they didn't know <laughs> it, it seems like such a cruel trick to play and i guess <laughs> veronica cartwright hurt herself right she, she she fainted so the camera pans to her when the blood is sprayed on her but you don't see her for the rest of the scene and i read that that's because she fainted because one of the actors fainted and she was the only one that didn't show up the rest of the scene <laughs> so she fainted after she got that blood on her and they just had to keep rolling to get the other actors it was taken in one shot because it was just so authentic and genuine and their shock and their faces were priceless so yeah I, and i had heard and i can't confirm um but i had heard that they had actually mixed in like real gore with it i like they went to a butcher shop and you know, got like did. pork or something like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> holy cow <laughs> Yeah, that's called uh, serious method acting, I guess, right? Like really taking it to the nth degree. Um, yeah, so, uh, well, we always finish up with uh, whether or not this is a film that we recommend. Um, I, I, I get the sense that this is going to be three very enthusiastic recommendations. Sam? 
100%. It is. It still remains one of my favorite horror movies, and it's just a joy to watch. Every time, I just, I love it. Uh, Ryan? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to recommend it 100% as well. Um, and yeah. like, we, we're only hitting like parts of it, like, cause this movie is just loaded with scares and you know, it's, it's a classic. Um, so absolutely 100%. Yeah, I agree. I, it's, uh, it's held up incredibly well. Uh, it's one of the, it's one of the movies from the late seventies where the special effects don't seem dated. Like they actually, I mean, some of the, some of the computer sounds and some of the computer screens. Are, and some uh, of the uh, editing was a little bit dated, but other yeah. than that, I think it was just, yeah, it's, it was it's still a very enjoyable movie. Yeah, it's terrific. Um, we are going to finish up this part of the podcast with our uh, announcement of our next film. But please do stick around because once we're done, we're going to stay on with Ryan to have a brief conversation about some of the films he's done with Creepy TV. And also just to get some uh, background information on what it's like and what it takes to make horror films. But um, Sam... I know you are very excited about our next movie. It's a movie she's dreaded since we made the list. It's a movie she has not wanted to watch because she has built it up in her head to be something that I keep telling her it's not, but we're going to watch it. She has no choice. So Sam, what are we watching next? The ring. And in case you never hear from us again, this is why. (laughs) (laughs) It took us more than 28 days to watch 28 days later, but that was not because she was scared. It was just because she went back to school. The Ring, uh, it may take a lot longer for me to convince her to actually sit down and watch it. Ryan, does she have to be scared? Uh, Does she have to be scared of The Ring? Yeah, it's it's pretty scary. (laughs) I knew it. Well, in the... um, in the litany of uh, really good quality horror films, it still stands up as one of the better ones. So we're going to watch it and um, we're going to enjoy it and we'll tell you all about it when we do. But uh, until then, thanks always, uh, thanks as always for joining us on uh, Dead and Slaughter, the dad and daughter horror show. Do, do stay on though, because uh, we'll be back in a couple of seconds to talk with Ryan about Creepy TV. But uh, thanks for joining us and uh, we always uh, uh, look forward to having you back when we we talk about the ring. Bye for now. Bye. Bye-bye. So Ryan, <laughs> what's up? What's it like making horror movies? How do you like what are some of the things that you like have to do to like it just seems like making a scary movie, like making a movie scary doesn't seem doesn't seem like it would be that easy. Like, I mean, throwing a bunch of gore, doing a bunch of jump scares, sure. But I've seen some of the stuff that you've done, and you do a great job of creating like some really creepy atmospheres. Uh, your monster costumes are fantastic, given that you're working on no budget. Um, you know, what are some of the tricks of the trade? Oh man. Um, so uh, sometimes what, okay. So uh, horror is awesome and I can make my own argument for it. I mean, you can incorporate whatever you want within a horror movie. So if you want to do uh, horror romance or horror comedy, you know, you can filter in all these different genres and mix them in. And I'm sure you can do them with others, but horror is what I like to explore because you can kind of get away with a little bit more than you could in an, in another genre. So what I mean by that is um, B-horror has like largely been accepted as, you know, it's a, its own thing. But I couldn't imagine like Titanic 
being like a B drama movie, you know, it just wouldn't fly. And so you're allowed to kind of cheat and cut some of the corners with B horror and get away with a little bit more. Um, and so that bodes really well to people with a lower budget. And so that also can translate into costumes that you can kind of cut corners with, you know, maybe you don't have, I don't know, the claw that you wanted and you can just kind of do a quick cutaway and um, you can kind of circumnavigate those on a lower budget, but doing horror is its own beast and it is a ton of fun. Um, and I think it's actually one of the, um, uh, see, I was reading somewhere that it's the most profitable genre in terms of getting like a return on investment. I don't know if that's true, but it is a fun genre to, to be making creatures within. So, yeah, I've read that as well. And I think that just has to do, like you said, because it's very inexpensive. Yeah. Um, you know, there's not a lot of, spe- you know, special effects and, and, you know, the budgeting, they tend to use, you know, B-level actors and actresses, as you said. Um, but, you know, when you talk about cutting corners and, and you can get away with things, is that just because the audience is less discerning or is that because the audience actually expects that sort of different level um, of, you know, acting, writing and whatever. I think they're more forgiving, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, like if, if you have a very obviously plastic knife, um, you know, they're, they're more, they're more forgiving. I haven't had anybody call me out for an obvious plastic knife, um, in a horror movie. I, I'm not sure if I would have one of those in a drama, um, but I've also never made a drama, but, um, I don't know. I just think that the audience is, they kind of know that it's uh, it's there, you're there for the ride. And so they kind of give the filmmakers a little bit more slack. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I think on it. Have you ever had like a scare that, or have you ever like filmed a scare that you thought, Oh, this is really going to be scary. And, and people watched it and were like, Oh, that didn't, that wasn't <laughs> scary at all. all. All the time. Um, so like, so like you'll, you'll have uh, when you're, when I'm making a movie, um, I'll do the script and then I'll storyboard it out or I'll get some action figures and I'll use my phone and just take pictures in lieu of a storyboard. And then when you get on set, you know, you're kind of playing with the light and the atmosphere and you go through the motions and you film it. And then um, my wife, I use her as my test audience. And so I'll show her stuff and she is a pretty, uh, she doesn't like horror. Um, she just thinks it's silly. So if I can get her to jump to something, then I call it a success. Otherwise, uh, I'm like, well, how, how would you change this? And then she can give me some of her feedback or her feedback. And then I'll try to make those adjustments. And if I can get her to jump, then I know I've done my job, but, um, yeah, it can be an uphill battle. But I imagine the jump scare is easier than like the tension build scare, like an alien, like, like the scare in alien to me is, is seems like it would be much more difficult than the jump scare, which is, you know, seems like it, seems like it, it would be easier. Yes. A hundred percent. Um, because that jumps, the jump scare, you just have that quick edit and that big blast of noise. Um, and in lieu of being able to set, uh, like set a scene or have that long take where you have that foreboding feeling, um, you know, you can throw that in to keep the audience participated, but I think it also depends on the audience that you're gearing towards. So, um, a lot of the stuff that we make, we do try to avoid the jump scares. 
Um, and then every Halloween we do try to do a fan film. So this past Halloween we did uh, a trick or treat and a Texas chainsaw massacre fan film. And those ones we do kind of jump into the more traditional stuff where the it's gratuitous violence and then a jump scare and, you know, loud sounds. Um, but that's not normally what we do, but it is a very different take when you're out shooting because you, you know, that you can kind of, um, speed up the pace of it because somebody's going to come around the corner and boom, you know, there's the guy with the chainsaw. Um, so yeah, it is, it is different when you're trying to build a scene versus just using the quick jump scare to get a reaction from the audience. Are there any directors, uh, that you sort of think of as being kind of like, you know, the, the leaders or the, you know, the ones to look to for really great horror? Ridley Scott for obvious reasons. Um, and just like what he does, cause he, he is a, a fantastic director in his own right. Um, and oddly enough, I really like Tim Burton and specifically how he did, um, uh, sleepy hollow with his set design, with the atmosphere he did with that, with like a period piece. Um, I think that's fantastic. Um, and that one, um, you know, in its own right, I really appreciate that film. But also there's one that came out recently, I believe in the last two years, It Follows. Um, and that movie, it, it really embraces the slow, long takes and wide shots. So you can see everything that's happening and you don't have the jump scares. And that one also just kind of plays on the audience as they are just, they, you can see everything in frame. And so when that when something is approaching from the background, you just have to watch it walk all the way from the background to the foreground. And mm -hmm. just that, you know, just that kind of lags on you and you can watch the whole scene play out and you have nothing to hide from. I mean, you can't hide with a quick cut. So yeah, it's, um, those are, those are three that come to my mind right off the top as some of the, the filmmakers or films that I have really appreciated within the horror genre or that have influenced creepy TV. Uh, well, Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast today and for this extra conversation, which was uh, really interesting and a great insight into uh, a little bit of uh, filmmaking. Uh, if you're interested, I'm going to have all of the links uh, for uh, Creepy TV in the show notes that can be found at uh, our website, dead hyphen and hyphen slaughter hyphen the dot captivate dot FM.